Jay, I'm the alcoholic joke teller. I dialed the number of a newcomer and got the following recording. I'm not available right now, but thank you for caring enough to call. I am making some changes in my life. Please leave a message after the beep. If I do not return your call, you are one of the changes. <laughs> I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Marion. Thanks for joining Please turn off all devices that make noise that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation.
Would you please join me in the fog light prayer? It's on the screen right here to my left and to my right. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Thank you. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we've discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. At this time, I've asked Nancy to come and read Appendix 2, Spirit's the spiritual experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it's kind of important to know what one is. Good evening. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Nancy. Spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Thank you. Thank you.
refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane mode or just turn them off. So tonight, it is my absolute honor and pleasure to introduce to you our speaker and my better half, Peter M., for his seventh session. Thank you, Vanna White. Uh, my name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, again, thank you to the group for having me here again. Um, it's really probably my favorite day of the week. Um, if someone is speaking, I'm hanging out in the back. Uh, sometimes I get the opportunity to share here, but I love getting up here on Thursday nights. It's one of my safe places to be on Thursday, and the fellowship here is, is just wonderful. So uh, I, I'm grateful to be here. Um, June 23rd, 1988 is when God separated me from alcohol. Very grateful for this gift of sobriety, uh, which was a Band-Aid on an open wound. This fellowship was when I arrived here in 1988, uh, completely clueless. Uh, and I'm not exaggerating, clueless. I, I had no clue how to live life. I knew how to drink uh, and, and uh, hurt people and uh, hurt myself, um, burn down any bridge that was put in front of me to cross over. Uh, I didn't have a clue. And there was another thread that ran through me, the arrogance to thinking I knew the way. Uh, if someone would challenge me, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd feel that thing going on in me that I need to push back. But uh, I was too, uh, I guess, emotionally and physically weak uh, to even attempt to push back. Uh, I looked at a meeting I'd walk into, and there'd be 50 or 100 or a couple of hundred people who seemed to be, as, as uh, uh, Ebby talks about, uh, Bill talks about Ebby, fresh-skinned and glowing, and uh, how could I possibly have an argument that I might have a better way? Uh, I'm, wear, I'm standing in the back of a room uh, at 28 years old, and I'm wearing my brother's clothes uh, because I had none. I, I showed up to uh, Minnesota after about uh, 10, 12 days in Amityville, Long Island. They sent me to another treatment center. And um, I'm coming down the, the escalator and waiting for the druggy buggy that's always there to pick us up, you know. And um, the woman was parked outside. And I'm coming down there with this little powder blue little thing you would put cosmetics in. And it was held together with black electric tape. And I had uh, an old hefty bag of some stuff my brother gave me to wear. And that was it. That's how I showed up. And I remember, you know, I'm, I'm 100 and I checked into treatment 130 pounds. I got hepatitis C. I got a lot of internal stuff going on that they had to follow up with doctors when I got to Minnesota. And uh, I got that pasty, oily look we get. And I really need a haircut. My hair gets really big. I, I, I look like Sly from Sly and the Family Stone, if you remember, the big afro. And, um, and Joan Jett, the, the musician and the Blackhearts, they were at the bottom of the escalator. And I actually thought coming down the escalator, I might have a shot here with her. I don't know. <laughs> so the arrogance was still there. And I hopped on the druggy buggy, and my life has never been the same. Um, I remember sitting in the, in the van where they took us for haircuts on a Saturday, 
And the song came on the radio, and I said to the tech, I used to get high to this, and he immediately shut the radio. I said, what are you doing? He says, people, places, and things. And I thought it was therapeutic nonsense, but it happened to be very, very true, because if I've listened to that song long enough, the narrative starts on how nice it would be to be drunk right now. So I had really good people, the bandit on an open wound when I got here, who really nurtured me, took good care of me, because I didn't have a clue how to take care of myself. I didn't even know who Bill and Bob was. I've been through seven treatment centers. I still don't know who Bill and Bob was. I had no idea what the steps are really talking about and the traditions. They might as well be in Latin because I don't know what that's about. And I would have settled for a night of, one night of sleep and be able to eat and hold my food down. That would, I would, have, that would have been my gold ring. I would have grabbed that one. Okay, I'm good. You guys did enough for me. And there was so much more to take. And I'm so glad I didn't settle for what my head told me I needed to settle for. My self-worth was at such a gutter level that I didn't even think I was worthy of any kind of good things to come into my life. To feel okay for a day, to be able to sleep at night, to be able to put on clean clothes, it was beyond me because I, I, I just didn't deserve that. Um, but God had other plans for me, and I'm very grateful for this merciful God that took me in to Alcoholics Anonymous and sent in the warriors to scoop me up and little by slowly put me back together. And I'm still a work in progress, but put me back together little by slowly. And I'm supposed to talk about step eight tonight, and uh, we look at relationships. And I, I've said this from a, a million podiums, that the longer I'm sober, Alcoholics Anonymous, for me, living a spiritual uh, life, doing this walk, being a walking prayer, it takes no effort to talk about God. It takes no effort to really quote scripture or quote the big book. The heavy lifting is living those words, the walk being the sermon, uh, being a living prayer. Can I be an example of the Lord's prayer? Can I be an example of, I'll never be that, but can I be an example of the God I'm praying to, even in adversity? So um, personal relationships, has been really, really important to me. God put this on my heart a few years ago. I don't know why, where it came from, why at that moment, but it just came to me, meditation, personal relationships, how are you doing with them? Now, overall, pretty good, but there were some things I needed to still clean up. And there weren't terrible harms. I haven't called Joe in a long time. I'm taking it for granted. I'll see him at another conference. Or perhaps I don't call my brothers often enough. I just bank on us calling each other. During a week, we'll catch up. But there's no guarantee I'm going to be here in an hour from now. Or they might not be here an hour from now. And this is so precious. This is it. Right now, right here, where we are, this is it. Because no one's guaranteed an hour from now. And I can just take that for granted. So I began this, this prayer and meditative life really into it. Of how do I clean up uh, any scrapes that I haven't cleaned up? What do I need to do? Because this journey is about personal relationships. And uh, no matter what I do, I've learned there are people who just don't like you, you know, don't like me. No matter what, I, if I part the seas, they'll find fault with it. When that's really okay, my job is to forgive them, not hold it against them. If I'm really going to claim a spiritual walk, I can't hold it against them. I need to forgive them. And it seems to be that this work allows me to change, which allows me to make amends, 
and fix things. And the more I seem to make amends and fix things, the greater change I experience. They feed off of each other. And even Bill talks about it in in our eighth step in the 12 and 12, about relationships, how important this is. Who do I have a grudge against? Who am I resentful with? Who am I still smarting from their injustice to me? Or who am I ashamed to see because of my injustice to them? There's no way I can go out and do this if I'm still running around and defects are taking the lead. Defects are driving me. I'm seeing and hearing and speaking through defects. I'm spiritually inept. I'm spiritually anemic. And I'm expecting to have healthy relationships because what I found out the hard way, like most of my lessons, sick attracts sick. So you see two youngins in AA trying to have live happily ever, ever after, and we know what's going to happen. It's a crash and burn relationship, and it's a matter of time. It's really interesting. You know, you get these two people, and uh, they get into bed, and uh, they think they're the only ones in bed. But they got all their resentments on. She's got all her resentments on her side. He's got all the resentments on his side. All the old belief systems, all the old ideas, all the attitudes, all the emotions. You got mom and dad. You got all the exes there. You know, you got grandma and grandpa there. Then if you're Italian or Catholic or Jewish or Muslim, you got all those beliefs. So there's about 600 people in this bed. And they really think they're alone, expecting to have a healthy relationship. But it began, and you know, for me, walking into Alcoholics Anonymous, thank you, God, in 1988. Uh, sometimes it seems like a week ago, and other times it seems like eons ago, 1988. I mean, I, I, I was uh, in meditation before, and I, was, I usually do a four-hour fast before I do these things and spend some time in meditation and pray and meditate before I go leave the house. And I was just thinking about it. Um, we had no cell phones. It was not that long ago. There were no cell phones in 1988. I mean, my uncle was really, really wealthy, and I remember he bought a Jaguar, and that was like basically a Rolls Royce in the Marinelli household, and he had a phone that was bigger than this podium, and it was, and he made me make a call. That was like, you know, Batman car or something, but no one had cell phones. I didn't have a computer, so it was a little bit different, and I'm glad they weren't there because there were too many distractions trying to get sober with that stuff, but... Um, my journey began in 88. I, I knew at this point what I was and what I suffered from, alcoholism. And alcohol was just a symptom of a much greater problem. I was under the belief system that if I didn't, just don't drink, go to means I'm going to be just grand. And that's just not the case. In fact, I found myself worse. All the isms surfaced to the, came to the surface, and I'm restless. You're discontented. I'm vibrating all the time. I'm super self-conscious, self-seeking, self-absorbed. I have no clue what's up. I'm worried about what I say. You ever be so nervous that as you're speaking, you hear yourself speaking? You say, that was dumb. You should have shut up. That sounded stupid. And I'm apologizing for everything. And I don't know what to do. And if I get quiet, why are you isolating? Then I talk. I shouldn't have spoke. A drink would fix all of this. So I got with the sponsor and some people in Minnesota who really showed me the depths of my alcoholism. And the first thing I learned was I have an illness that tells me I don't have one. I have an illness. Here I am 34 years later telling me you're just fine. It's all those other people. It never, ever, ever will present the truth to me. But my alcoholism will always get me. And so I learned what I was up against, and I looked at my experience of this allergy that I have one drink and I need a second drink. I have a second drink, I definitely have a third. And it's really interesting that the second and third drink scream louder than the first one. 
And that kind, of, that kind of lifestyle took me to living in an abandoned building in Alphabet City many years ago. I was a homeless bum on the street, all for the price of a drink. And I'd pay any price tomorrow to seek comfort right now. And if I'm not careful in sobriety here, that if I start to get away from this and become untreated, that old thinking, pay any price tomorrow to seek comfort right now, will be the sex spree, the food spree, the gambling spree, whatever spree it is, and then eventually a, a, a drink. Because I have alcoholism, not wasm. And so for me, it was a matter of the way my journey was, is walking through a lot of darkness before I can see some light. And that has followed me into AA, where there's been many times where I had to walk through some darkness and come to terms with, I can't, I hope he can. Because there's no one else who can. The sponsors would point me, but I had to do the walk. And it was through some darkness. And when I feel most weak and most vulnerable and too transparent that I embrace, I can feel, I can experience, I can even see God's light, God's strength, and God's power. And that's very humbling. It's a force feeding of humility. And that never tastes good. Because when that's happening, we're usually the last people in the room who think we have a little bit of humility. As soon as I think I'm humble, I'm no longer humble. As soon as I think I've got spirituality, I've lost it. As soon as I think, well, I got God. No, I haven't. But it seems to be in the searching, in the chopping wood and carrying water, we have these enlightenments, these moments of enlightenment. People say, hey, there's something really good about you. What are you doing? I say, I don't know. Write an inventory, pray and go into meetings. I don't know. Praying like my life depends upon it sometimes. So I got really in touch with um, what I'm up against here. And, and I'd rather at this point in my life, and I hope this never leaves me, one day God will call me home, let me die with alcoholism, not from it. Because we can die, I can die from alcoholism without ever putting a drink in me. And we hear the stories when you stick around here long enough, you see, you know, you get the husband, the wife, and the kids, and I make guest appearances at AA now. And I show off the new baby, and everyone comes around, congratulations, and then I don't come back anymore. Or I'm working a lot. I got two jobs, and that's very admirable, but doesn't cure my, fix my alcoholism. Because I need to be here. And not only need to be in this fellowship, and I speak for myself, but I need to get busy with this. I need to be living in all three sides of the triangle. I need to give it all away. And somehow, somehow I walk away traveling lighter. I get to wear the world like a loose garment on most days, not every day. Because still, where I am, every once in a while I get my own way. I take on burdens that are not mine. I need to control and fix and rearrange stuff for my comfort. Until I write an inventory, hit the wall, and I realize I have no right to put it upon someone else to make me comfortable. That's selfish and self-seeking and self-centered and so on. And I moved through the steps. Two and three and four was heavy lifting. I never did an inventory. I was so used to blaming other people, other circumstances. This is where I'm at, where I'm at, you know. I blame my family for a whole lot of my troubles. I blame all relationships with, with women for my problems. You know, I blame my mom dying when I was 14, taking her life. That kind of, this is why I am, well, they may have contributed to my makeup, but I, I couldn't say this is the reason why, and if dad was this way and mom was this way and everyone else was different, I'd be great. No, I'd still be drinking and eating pills and doing the things I did because that's what I do. I have no design for living. 
I don't know how to do life on life's terms, and I, I still don't want to know how to do life on life's terms because for me that interprets to I need a double vodka to get out of bed, and I need more of everything. I'm gluttony. I, be, I, I fall into being a glutton. Life on God's terms, ah, now it's a different ball game. God's terms are simple and easy, inclusive. It's hard work. It's a disciplined life, but I'd rather do it that way than life on my terms because you'll be taking me to a detox on my terms. I need more of everything. You said I'm good, you should have said I'm great. You said I'm great, you should have said I'm fantastic. Because all my mind does, if it's not perfect, then it's terrible. There's no thank you for the compliment and move on. I need more of everything. And that's how I was when I drank. I need more drink, more drink. I'm throwing up to come back and drink some more. And um, I was, was I willing to turn things over? Yes. And, and four, five, six, seven uh, really flushed out a lot. Now, I had no idea when I was doing four, five, six, and seven what was happening to me. And I'm so grateful God didn't say, uh, Pete, you know, great things are happening to you. You were flushing out a lot of defects because I would have taken over. All I knew was a lot of heavy lifting in 427, a lot of coming to terms with what I had become, a lot of coming to terms with a lot of people I hate, a lot of institutions I despise, and a lot of coming to terms with looking in the mirror and still despising the, the reflection that was coming back at me. And I couldn't dress that up. No matter what, how nice I tried to look, what was looking in the mirror, I didn't like that guy at all. Guilt and remorse and resentment and living in the wreckage of the future. That's how I walked around with. And little by slowly, through this work and a good sponsor and great support in Alcoholics Anonymous, it starts to erode to the point where I felt like I don't even know who I am. Good place to start. You know, when we say I need to find myself, I need to discover myself, I need to work on myself, all bad information, we need to be rid of self. I don't need to work on myself, self's done enough damage. I need to find myself, that guy's drinking somewhere. When I'm looking for myself, I'm looking for Joe All-America, clean-cut guy, wrong guy. I need to be rid of self. And there's a lot of claw marks in the selves that were removed from me. Because what's going to happen to me? I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid. I'm so concerned. I want to peek around the corner and see where I'm going. I'm so afraid of what I'm going to become that I hold on to the only thing I know. Pain and misery. I can operate in that. I know pain and misery. I know what that's like. I know the game out there. I can do that. This new life of spiritual and forgiveness and amends and praying to God and being transparent and vulnerable and don't worry about it. God's going to take care. I don't know this life. And it scared me to death. But thank God for God that he removed everything from me coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. There was no relationship. I didn't even have a relationship with my own family, let alone a lady. There were no children, thank God, as, as far as I know anyway. Is this on? Okay. <laughs> I had nothing. So there were... Not many distractions other than the ones, the narratives that my mind always creates. Because the mind, my mind will always create a delusion to block me from the truth. That's what it does. My mind does not like stillness. My mind does not like gratitude. My mind does not like God. My mind does not like being of service to others. My mind doesn't like doing things like that. My mind wants attention all the time. It likes activity. It needs a narrative. 
and it's always producing one. All wrongdoing arises from the mind. If the mind ever got transformed, what wrongdoing could exist? When we look at the world out there, the mind has taken over and God is in batting third. And this is what we do. I collide with people because I'm listening to this. This predator that wants no peace, no understanding, no love, no contentment, but always wants me drunk. So there came a point, I, I, I remember going through the work the first time and getting to a place where this, this, like, this feeling like I might be okay. I might be okay this time because the, the feeling, and I didn't have money, I didn't have things to say, they're going to be okay, just got a promotion, I got a new car. I had nothing, but there was something in the soul that was telling, I think we're going to be okay. I was walking different. My, 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 my feet were hitting the ground finally. And I remember my dad would always preach to me as a kid, no matter what, he would say, head up and shoulder square, head up and shoulder square. And little by slowly, I was lifting my head up and my shoulders were getting square. I'm getting older. I lean over once in a while because of this terrible back I have, but head up and shoulder square. And that was being done for me. I was less embarrassed, ashamed of walking into a room full of people. I mean, I wasn't walking in, hey, I'm here, and I still not like that, but I, I, I would walk in and against the wall and kind of make my way to the last row and sit down and hope no one noticed me. Because if they say hello, I got to talk to them. And if I have to talk to them, they're going to know what a loser I am. So, okay. I don't have to do that anymore. But I remember what that felt like. If someone talks to me, I have to ha converse with them. And I know, I know they're going to know about me. And if they only knew who I really was, they'd probably ask me to leave. They'd just walk away. I was hypersensitive. If someone did speak to me and it was a quick, brief comment, it's okay, we'll see you later and walked away. Says, see what I mean? You're not even worth a conversation. My esteem was at the gutter level. And that's what living an active alcoholic life does. And I'll be, I'll be blunt here, and I, I'm not trying to offend anyone. I came up in a different time. I don't get coming into AA with one day having a cell phone and credit cards and a car outside. I, I can't identify with that. If that's your walk, fabulous. I'm not saying you're not an alcoholic. But I don't identify with those guys. I just don't. I identify with the guys who come in or ripped apart. Who, got, who don't even have a place to sleep tonight. I know that walk. But as long as I got credit cards and a little bank account and some money for me, and I'm speaking for myself, that's more running time. One more time. And God removed everything from me. And when I finished step seven for that time, Finished meaning the assignment was complete. It's ongoing. All of this is ongoing. And I got to step eight. I had to make a list. And our book talks about most of that list came out of my step four, but not all of it. Because there were many people on that list that I really didn't see a resentment with, but I harmed them. You know, ripping off a place, stealing money from someone. Someone leaves a restaurant and left it, uh, a jewelry or, or a credit card on the floor, and I take it and put it in my pocket. I have no problem with that person. I just got to get what they left behind. 
and there's a harm caused. So that list immediately increased. In fact, I remember the first time I, w- I had my amends list, I made about in the neighborhood of 200 direct amends and uh, a bunch of ones that I couldn't go to uh, face-to-face. But it was about creating this list. And what I had to do to, to do this list was first pray. Because I haven't gotten big enough here, and I hope I never do, that I don't need God on this one. I hope I never get so well that I think I become immune from the tactics of my disease. I'm good, and I I can figure this out. So I was instructed, make sure you pray like we've done everything else. Take a few minutes, and then pick up a pen, take out your fourth step, and start writing down harm's cause. And that's what I did. And I started with my immediate family, my dad my brothers, my grandparents, so on and so forth, went back through my life, and a lot of other names came up, including institutions that uh, I had harmed, and there was no resentment in connection with them. Then the heavy lifting began. It was about praying to make amends to every single person on that list. Step nine is going to tell me except when to do so would injure them or others. But no matter what walk of life, no matter where they were in their life, no matter what kind of relationship they were, I'm not going there yet. I had to go to God for the willingness to go. Step nine is going to tell me, except when to do so with them or others. And so I began. In the morning and in the evening, on awakening, retiring, and I, one of my prayers was, God, please give me the willingness to make amends. Please give me the willingness to make amends because it was shown to me that if I don't complete the amends that I'm consciously aware of, then I'm probably going to drink again. And I really can't enter the world of the spirit if I'm still being dragged back by yesterday. How can I live now knowing how I lived then? It's haunting me. I'm never really free. I'm pretending to be free. I'm under the delusion that I'm free. And there were a lot of people on that list that I couldn't go to. I found out in step nine because I would cause more harm. A lot of people would have social media. I had no idea where they were. But God's way in God's time, am I going to trust God or not? <coughs> Pardon me. And so I create this list. And I start praying for willingness. How free do I want to be? I could go to my local meetings. Who's going to see these people? It's an old relationship. Bill talks about, let's just bygones be bygones. Hey, you know, just forget about it. Up to chances, the likelihood of bumping into John or Mary is slim and none. Do I really need to make an appointment with them? Do I really need to seek them out? The answer is yes. I need to be willing to go to everyone. I was a longshoreman. I was a, a dock worker for a number of years, and it was a, a, a way I made a lot of money illegally besides my paycheck and, and treated people harshly and rarely showed up and, and screamed at a few men who were you know, twice the size of me and embarrassed the heck out of my dad. My dad was in charge of oh, maybe three, 400 men. And my uncle worked with him, and my dad's friends worked with him, and I embarrassed my dad regularly. And the men I worked for who would cover my back, I would abuse them by not showing up. I was borrowing money and not paying it back, had no intention of paying it back. They have plenty. They'll forget about it. And taking things, stealing things that didn't belong to me, 
I'll make it up tomorrow. I'll pay any price tomorrow to seek comfort right now. And I was into non-conference approved dry goods back then. So I had the alcohol screaming and the narcotics screaming. And there's something I can take. I'm taking it. I'll figure it out tomorrow. If I get arrested tomorrow, fine. Right now I need to do what I need to do. It's deadly. And I heard a lot of people. In our book, it talks about, uh, uh, you tell us, uh, how do we get out from under? How do I get out from under all of this? I'm looking at Jody, old timer's got 20, 25 years, 30 years, and his joy is happy and free. And I want to say, you don't understand the rock that's on me right now, how big it is. But little by slowly, in God's way, in God's time, and um, I'm praying for willingness. And I remember, um, I'm going to wind up bleeding into step nine here, but I remember there was a gentleman named Bob B., uh, not my sponsor, who's Bob B. from St. Paul. This was Bob B. from um, uh, another part of Minnesota. Um, And uh, he ran uh, the sober house I was in. And, And Bob Bannister was about, you know, six foot five, six foot six, a big, big country boy. And, um, you know, with about six months-ish, I was kind of feeling myself and thinking I'm a big shot. I think I talked about this last week. And he called me into the office and read me the riot act and threw me out. And I was appalled by that. And I was figuring out ways I could hurt him. And as I got to the parking lot, I realized that little voice, you know that little voice that talks to us that we don't listen to, that God voice? It's the gauge. It's our GPS. You're doing it again. You're doing it again. And the first amends I made, and I don't know why, I'm praying for willingness, and his name was like three-dimensional. I didn't have money to go to Minnesota, so I called him. And I says, I need to talk to you about some things, some harms. He says, I know what you're doing. He started laughing. He says, I'm hearing good things from Vince. This Vince was uh, kind of a sponsor to me. And I said, I need to make amends to you, which is not just saying I'm sorry. It's about repairing and me changing, me showing change. See, the thing when it comes to amends, I may have taken money from you, and it looks like an external hurt on my part, but it's an internal wound on your end. I need to be really clear on that. And I don't know how much of a wound it caused in you until I listen to what you have to say. And I made amends to this guy, and I remember asking, what can I do to make it right? He's what you're doing is great. You have a sponsor. Obviously, you're doing the steps, and we start talking about recovery. And for a moment, we were almost equals. He had about 18 years, and I had maybe two. We were almost equals at this point. Two AAs sharing this message, talking about life. And um, I went to a 1.30 meeting that day, the Kenilworth Group in Brooklyn. And I walked in. The speaker didn't show up. And this old-timer, Harry, said, uh, hey, kid, you want to speak? The speaker didn't show up. I says, sure, what step? He Step nine. I said, I just made my first amends an hour ago. And that's what I talked about. And I realized that's why I called Bob Bannister to go talk about that good news. Not that I made one amends and the group should, you know, give me a parade. But I was able to talk about the good news that just happened to me an hour ago and how free I felt because of it, that I was able to go back to Minnesota the following year for five years in a row and visit my treatment center at my halfway house in the three legacies meeting head up and shoulder square i had no skeletons in the closet i finally now walked into that room with a whole lot less shame because i was making i was doing like drive-by amends at this point i was making amends a lot (laughs) 
how can I live now knowing how I lived then? I need to clean up. Do I think drinking, do I think finishing amends has anything to do with me drinking again or not? And lots of times I run into folks and, you know, they didn't complete their amends that they were consciously aware of. They got, we settle for comfort, being comfortable, but I still got a whole lot of wreckage. That's going to eat me at some point. I got still have plaque on the soul. And so I'm making amends, and uh, when I went to uh, my sponsor and talked about going to see my dad, and he didn't tell me what to do. He said, this is what I would do. Your dad has heard every apology in the world from you. He said, why don't you walk it out for a while, walk the sermon before you see him. And so that's what I did, but I had to go see my brother's. And uh, my middle brother, when I, I made the approach, the approach in the men's is two different. I made the approach, and he kind of like stood straight back on me. He wasn't done yet being angry. And he was a tough one. And when I said to him, what can I do to make it right? What do you need to tell me? Now, he didn't go up one side, down the other on me, but in no uncertain terms, he let me know how the family was held hostage by me. He said, I watched the old man not sleep night after night after night waiting for you, hopefully, to come home. And God forbid if a a siren was rolling down the avenue, he knew it was you. And how angry he got at us for that. He was taking it out on us. And so it was my job now to be a brother to my kid brother. It was my job to, sh- to suit up and show up on time, to be where I was going to be when I said I was going to be there and give him his time to heal from this. And the walking of the walk was really going to be the sermon. And I went to my younger brother. This was, this was difficult. Uh, my brothers, uh, myself and my brothers are very close. My kid brother, my youngest one, was attached to me as, at the hip from, from the time he was a little guy. And uh, he grew up, uh, he just had a few years with my mom before she died, and all he knows, his memories of my mom were just her sick in psych wards. And uh, my dad at this point was difficult to be around. My dad was angry about what God had done to his life. And so my youngest brother attached himself to my hip. He used to be afraid of the dark, and we had these bunk beds, and he would, can I sleep in your bed? And I'd cuddle him up and have him sleep next to me as a little boy and uh, because he was so afraid of everything and uh, he'd follow me around I was about 15 or 16 and you know you're starting to hang out with women and I would take him with me uh, and tell him I'm babysitting and uh, it was all cool because he was more important than she was and I was I was a protector for him and then um you know, alcohol and drugs does what it does. And uh, my family moved to Staten Island. And in my mind, my brothers will find their way. And I pretty much just left them. Now, my middle guy, my middle brother is always independent. But my brother Anthony, um, he lost his way. Where's my big brother? And I wasn't around. And when I'd walk in, he'd look for my attention and try to, and I'm drunk. I'm high, and I'm just going through the motions. And I, I think back, his eyes now was like, where's my brother? He was so proud of me that I was a gifted musician, and he knows what I'm turning into. And one day I, I came home, it was in the afternoon uh, during the week, and my brother was sitting on the steps, sitting on the stoop, as we say in Brooklyn. 
And he was just very fidgety. He was a nervous wreck, big, big kid. And um, I drove up, and I saw that look in his eyes. He had like a broken heart. His mom's gone. My dad's a, a rough character. My other brother's out dating, and he's sitting on the stoop. Where's Peter? And I took him. We got in a car, and I took him to uh, A&W Root Beer. And used to be able to drive up, and they come out and serve them. Yeah. And... Um, Yeah. So we had a couple of burgers and a few root beers. And my brother couldn't talk fast enough because he had me alone to talk to his older brother, who he had missed. I couldn't see the damage that alcohol and drugs took me away from two kids that I adored. And we spent a few hours together that day. My brother and I are no longer children, but till this day, my brother says that was one of the best days of his life. Sitting in the car, having a burger at A&W Root Beer. His brother was back. I didn't stay back, though. I became progressively worse. That same kid brother wanted to kill me one night because of what I was doing to my dad and to the family. That same kid brother, I stole his Cadillac that he worked so hard to buy. I crashed it. I sold the Cadillac medallion. I pulled the old hubcaps, those, those fancy off. I sold them. And his girlfriend had the old boom boxes in the trunk, and I sold that. And the back window on the passenger side was busted. And that's how I returned my kid brother's car, his idol. I got a lot of road ahead of me to fix. And it's interesting when we get sober, we look back and say, oh, my God, what did I do? What did I do? And when I was out there, I couldn't care about my family. They were annoying. They kept reminding me what a loser I was. You need to go to treatment. You need to go to meetings. You need to just get off my back. I hate all of you. And then I get sober. I say, I need them near me. I need my family near me. And they want nothing to do with me at this point. I blew it. Thank God for the membership, the fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous that had been through that walk, had been in that kind of hole. Says, we've been there. We got you. We're going to support you. We're going to hold you up. Give it, give it time. Let God do what God's got to do. God will, God will heal it. And I went to see that kid, brother. And when I was in the middle of amends, he began to weep. And when he said, I thought you were going to die on me, I didn't know how to stop it. And he apologized for me for getting so angry with me. But that's what alcoholism does. It turns mild-mannered people into raging, rageaholics. Our family members. Thank God for Al-Anon. And so through the healing of this work, my brothers and I are closer than ever. My, this same brother uh, was diagnosed with bipolar, really bad bipolar. And he was, he was having these bouts with it. We didn't know what was going on. He's an actor. Maybe it's the business. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's a girlfriend. You look at everything but. 
and I got home from a conference. I was in Texas one weekend. I was living in New Jersey. I dropped my luggage and my phone rang. My dad said to me, where are you? I just got home. He says, can you come to my house? He lives up in Fort Lee. your brothers. I don't know what to do. I'm about to call 911. I said, I'm on my way. And I'm watching my kid brother's a big boy now. Um, one of those muscle guys. He's got the six pack. I hate him. Anyway, um, and I'm, he's crumbling. And uh, I set my dad in the next room, and I talked to my brother like I would spend time with a drunken Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the most important person in my life right now. I have no distractions. And I sat with my brother for about a half hour, and he just cried on my shoulder because he was in a, a depressive part, and he just felt like the world was, was, was over. And uh, we quickly got him to a doctor, and he, he got medicated, and he's doing great today, thank God. The power of amends was allow me to walk out of the dark into light and be of service to other people. So many times I've made amends to people, and I thought I was going there to make amends, which I was, and then what they tell me is I have a brother or a sister. I have an uncle, I have a mom or a dad who's got what you got. Can you take him to that place? The guys I work with, the longshoremen, not highly uh, high in education. A lot of them are high school dropouts, so they talk kind of funny. But they said, can you take him to that triple A? Can you take him to that double A? Can you take him to that place? You, you got the cure, right? Take him, get the cure. They didn't really know about this, but can you take my loved one where you got better? And I realized I was bearing witness, not only just in AA, but to people in general. This is God's light shining. And the more amends I cleaned up, the more head up and shoulder square I was walking. The more amends I cleaned up, the lighter I was traveling. And the more amends I cleaned up when adversity hit, because it has hit in my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous, sometimes harder than others. That fear was replaced with, I don't know how it's going to get better. I don't know when it's going to get better. I do know God's going to get it better for me. I just, there's this thing. It's going to be okay. I might have to do a lot of chopping wood and carrying some heavy buckets of water, but God's going to fix it. Because a doctor does the surgery, God does the healing. A farmer plants and God does the growing. I got to chop wood and carry water and God will heal. Am I going to trust him or not? And all those longshoremen I went to, and there were some people I could not go to, because I would cause more harm in so doing. And the ego wanted, the ego wants a nine-step notch on its belt, so I come in here like a big shot, I made the most difficult amends. That's not what this is about. This is about how would I would want to be approached if someone was coming to me, and who am I going to affect by making this amends and secure their uh, permission? And there were some people I just couldn't go to. I would jeopardize people's jobs and, and get people in trouble. So my sponsor says, how much money do you think all of this comes to? He says, pray on it. And I came up with the number, a few thousand dollars. He says, okay, take that number, 2,000 or 2,500, and from today until you pay that off, and he says, what's going to happen? It's going to continue, because he knew, because I still do this. He says, start giving money to charities. Take that number, start paying back. He says, and you treat all people like you would want to be treated. And so I started doing that, and there were many people I didn't want to treat nice. But I remember my sponsor telling me, how free do you want to be? And this is where I started to learn love and tolerance. And I would give to church. I, got, I remember getting an advertisement, a mail one time, about the, this, I think it's called DAV, Disabled American Veterans. 
And I always loved the men and women who served this great country. I said, how can I give back? I always wanted to be a Marine. I used to watch a show called A Combat as a kid growing up. I always wanted to be Vic Morrow. Some of the older folks remember this. Maybe not. I don't know. But I always wanted to be that guy, the Marine with the cigar hanging out, the rough and tough guy, and I'm afraid of bugs. So that was going to happen. Um, but... Um, what I started to do was, what a great way to give back to a cause that I, that I really love for some people who gave almost all. And so they would send me these little things, and I put a check in there. I don't know if it was every month or so, I'd send five. And then I'd start to save money and send ten. Then maybe I'd get some extra money and send fifty or a hundred, things like that. And that over a number of years. So I way overpaid it back to the universe. And that introduced me to some other things, and that's why I just started thinking about uh, there's a lot of homeless down here. Can I just drive by them, pretend, look the other way, I don't see them? If I'm walking down the street, I don't see them, I see them. That man or woman was the cutest baby in mom's arms on the block one day. There was great hope for that child one day. And they wound up here. I could be there. I was there. So if I have five bucks or 10 bucks or 20 bucks, it's not going to hurt me. I'll roll down my window or I'll stop him on the street. How's it going? We saw a young lady the other day. I says, when was, why don't you come to AA? She says, I haven't been there in a long time. And I'm looking at this young kid about 25 years old panhandling on the street. We know what happens to women out on the street. Was she missing all her teeth? And my heart broke. I, we drove home. I was just numb. I said, another one alcoholism got and the meetings are all over. So I try to give back to folks like that and give back to the universe. It came time for me to sit with my dad. And this was the most emotionally difficult one. And it wasn't that I was afraid of him anymore, respected him, but how do I do this? How do I make amends to a man who's heard every apology known to mankind that if I hit Powerball for 10 million, I probably owe him another five? I mean, how do you, how do you fix this? How do I fix this? Well, I happen to be working with my dad. And I was getting to work early. My sponsors do what AA told you to do. Get there early and stay late. Get there early and stay late. And that's how I worked. Get there early and stay late. Stay late. I didn't know I was getting to work at 7 o'clock. And my dad and his friends were already in the diner at like 5 o'clock in the morning. I said, they're old. They get up early. I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I must be getting old. And... Um, so I kind of dug it. I liked the camaraderie they had. So I stopped getting to work really early. And then my dad would leave around 3 o'clock, and I'd stay till the, the foreman said, kid, go home. And I'm saving money, and I'm coming to work looking clean-shaven, you know, bright-eyed and sober. My walk is, is the sermon. I'm making amends to some of these other people I, 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 I owed money to. And one day I met my dad for breakfast, and I said to him, you have a few minutes to talk to me? And he said, of course. And I had been saving money. I had money in my breast pocket, inside pocket. It was a, a few hundred dollars to begin a payment because I owed him a fortune of money for lawyers and stuff. And uh, I began the approach. And he stopped me. I remember he had the coffee like this, and he put up his hand, put the coffee down. He said, I don't want the money. He says, all I ever wanted was my son back. And he went on to praise Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, whatever they're telling you to do, just keep going there. And he talked to me for a brief moment, because he's not that guy, about how proud he was to see me in the morning. He didn't even use that word. He says, when I see you walk in, it's a different guy. Your eyes are clear. You look like a man now. 
coming from my dad, that's a major compliment. And what happened was uh, I had to see some truck driver. And this truck driver was a big, big man. And the kind of voice you hear down the block when they're approaching. And I had really uh, been ugly with this one truck driver. I was trying to get money off him to do something that was illegal. He wanted no part of it. And I, I cursed him out really loud and ugly in front of all the other workers. And he just absorbed it. And uh, I went to him to make financial restitution and try to clean that up. And again, I got a few words out. and He, he gave me a bag hug and just about lifted me up off the ground. And what he told me was really profound for me at that point in my life. See, I didn't know he and my dad were, were childhood friends. He remembers when my, mom, when my dad and mom were dating. And he knew my dad well. And he'd stop in my dad's office and have a cup of coffee during the day and re, you know, reminisce about the old days and things like that. And he remembers when my dad was telling him, I don't know what to do with my son anymore. And he told me, so you have no idea how proud your dad is of you. All he does is talk about you. My dad referred to me getting sober as I beat it. I beat this thing that I'm up against, this alcoholism. He's look at him, look out the window, that's my son. See, recovery affects a lot of people. The way getting drunk and disorderly hurts a lot of people. You know what Alcoholics Anonymous did in my family? It began to heal my family. One drunk with a book under his arm. Our book talks about that. Although I might be one man with a book under my arm, God will take care of me and took care of them because this kind of light, not coming from me but coming from him, starts to light up darkness. My brothers found Al-Anon. My brothers found CODA meetings. My brothers found church. My brothers found therapy and started to heal in their own way. And that had a profound effect upon my dad. My dad openly talks about God today. This was unheard of when I was growing up. He wasn't an atheist, but he wasn't that guy to talk about God. And there was this, this domino effect that ran through my family. It isn't butterflies and rainbows, but it certainly has healed. And what it's done for me, what Alcoholics Anonymous has done in doing step nine, we'll talk more about this next week, it has awakened the spirit. It has put me in a place of listening for that godly voice rather than hearing mine. It has brought me to a place of having a tremendous uh, amount of trust, uh, dependence, and faith in God. But I'm around long enough to know that even the greatest faith has doubts. I get that. What would God want me to do? I need to talk to God. God, please help me get through this. God, show me what to do. God, please bless this journey. God, please uh, uh, forgive Joe. God, please heal Mary. Whatever it is, I don't know what he's going to do, but I do that offering because I know he's going to do what's right. That's a long, long way from walking into a meeting and want to sit in the back row because I'm too embarrassed to be me. What this sacred fellowship has done for a bum like me, who was a penhaler on the street, it took me from the scrap heap to a better a life better than the best I've known. It's put incredible people, a lot in this room tonight, in my life, that I can walk shoulder to shoulder with. It's put a most wonderful woman in my life. I, I can't even believe she's my wife. And. Uh, so I'm blessed, and I owe it all to God and Alcoholics Anonymous. That's all I got. Peace.
Let's give Peter another hand. Yay. So let's have the secretary report. Here comes. Here we come. Hello, everyone. I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. My name's Joey. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. As they're going around, I've asked um, a good man named Zach to come up and read the recovered statement. We read this to explain my many people in this group may identify as recovered rather than recovering and what exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. So welcome, Zach. Thank you. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Zach. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. Page 23. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you, Zach. All right. 1940s-style big book sponsorship from the forward of the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sobered once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. Um, is there anyone at this time in this meeting that would uh, need a sponsor? Oh. yeah. Uh, what's your name again? Alex. Beautiful man. Let's welcome Alex. Thank you. Awesome. Anyone else besides Alex? Awesome. What's your name? Demi? Awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry. My vision stinks. Anna? Awesome. Thank you. All right. Um, now, any recovered alcoholics out there? So you have your pick, guys. So hopefully you all can come together and Get closer with God. Um, all right. We have announcements. Here we go. Uh, inner group. We all know it. We all love it. It's where you can buy AA-related literature and medallions. Also responsible for creating our where and when and scheduling the AA hotline. Stop by and pay them a visit. BCIC, responsible for bringing meetings into places where people like us cannot get out to an AA meeting, such as jails, detoxes, rehabs. They meet monthly um, at the 12-step house. Is there anyone here at BCIC? That's okay. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And we also have flyers in the back for all these as well. Um, 
uh, Peter. We know him, we love him, and we're grateful to have him. He's uh, we're continuing here with us. Um, after uh, Karina D., I can't remember where she's from, but she... Davies, thank you. Um, she will be gracing us um, when Peter is done. Um, 22nd, so that'll be cool. I'm excited for that. My home group, Monday, um, on the third floor of this building. It's awesome. We go through the book, um, show up at 6.30. There will be cookies there as well, so it's a really uh, good time. All right, we do have CDs, mugs, large print, big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale next to the pamphlets in the back there. Feel free to uh, see a home group member. We'll help you out if you need any of those. We meet every Thursday, probably starting 7.15. Feel free to come early. There will always will be people here. We ask to be curious and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you all. See you next week. We have tonight's sessions and all the past speakers' podcasts at alcoholicsandgod.org. And we'd also like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study and those whom wish to thank tonight's speaker to line up down the center aisle. And right now we will just close in our seats with the Lord's Prayer. Whose Father? It doesn't matter
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. See 
the light Count my blessings when I go to sleep at night And I dream now Yeah, I dream now And everything's alright <laughs> Oh, man Going on 10 years old, that song is God bless I love you, Mike Chase Bye
the tape. Got one man that just won't say. 